Gut Check Project fans and KBND Health family. Welcome to the Gut Check Project. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, joined by my other host here, Dr. Ken Brown. Ken, what's happening today? Well, what's happening today is we have another fantastic podcast with a great guest. This is Dr. Joel Walskog, who is an orthopedic surgeon and co-founder of React 19, a science-based nonprofit that actually came about because of medical professionals and everyday people who actually experienced adverse reactions to the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, Dr. Walskog, I attended your lecture this morning, fantastic lecture, and that is so tip of the iceberg. That statement does not include everything that you guys are doing and everything that you were discussing. So I'm super thrilled that you're here on the Gut Check Project, and we got a lot of territory to cover, so welcome. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. So to get everything started, obviously you had a practice in uh, Wisconsin, yep. and just kind of take us what took you there, and then... And then next thing you know, we're into COVID and we're here at the FLCCC. So what brought us together today? Well, unfortunately, uh, I'm from Wisconsin. Okay. So uh, not to say that uh, Wisconsin is not a bad place to raise a family, but the weather certainly stinks. So uh, I actually was born in Chicago, and but my family moved because uh, my dad's job up to the Milwaukee area when I was two. So I pretty much, I say born in somewhat, not born, but raised in, in Wisconsin. I went to... Uh, Marquette University in Milwaukee for undergrad. Uh, then I uh, moved to Madison. So I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison for med school and was kind of scared that I was so far from home. So I went back and did my residency in Milwaukee. And then after that, I really uh, took some chances and moved to Cleveland <laughs> for a little less than a year for a fellowship in joint replacement. I should also say that I married my college sweetheart really a month after, you know, uh, we graduated uh, or I graduated undergrad and we had no idea what the hell we were doing, but we're, believe it or not, still married. Good. Four kids now. Congratulations. And so I, when we got married, uh, she was, I was 22 and she was 21, but we were of the, you know, kind of age and Catholic background where we couldn't, you know, I, I was potentially going to med school anywhere across the country. You know, you kind of just figure out where you're going. That's where you're going. And, and then, then. In the end, obviously, we just went to Madison. So, but anyway, so we got married, uh, and uh, I, I developed a very large orthopedic practice. And so I it was in practice for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. The first 10 years, I was in a private practice. Uh, and then the second 10 years, I was employed by a large healthcare employer uh, who I, I should name, but Advocate Aurora Healthcare. And, and I'll tell you why I named them, because um, I don't have much respect for them anymore. Sure. It's mm -hmm. a good story. But... Um, and really, uh, we had four kids, uh, wonderful life. I still have a wonderful life, uh, very blessed. And uh, my practice was fantastic. You know, I, you know, and after about seven to 10 years, and most people in medicine knows you, you kind of develop a level of mastery where you just kind of go in and you kind of, it's, it was fun. I, I love getting up. I love going to my job every day. Uh, I don't think there were many days I didn't like. And... Uh, Love taking care of people. Uh, I specialize in joint replacements, so I'm you know, really able to provide people a dramatic improvement in their function in a very short period of time, so it's very gratifying. Uh, very large practice. I had a bunch of people working under me, PAs, nurse practitioners, and all that. I probably saw about 6,000 patients uh, in clinic every year and did about eight to 900 joint replacements, or eight to 900 surgical cases, most mm -hmm. of which, which were joint replacements. If you average that out, it's, it's a pretty big number, so I had a busy practice. Sure. And, uh, but I loved it. And, uh, and the, then COVID happened. And I remember in March of 2020, 
I uh, was vacationing with my family down in uh, Florida, and this whole COVID stuff happened. And I remember Fauci, oh, 15 days to you know, lessen the curve and all that, and we're on vacation. We're like, oh, our vacation is going to double. We're like, this is cool, <laughs> you know, at first. And, and uh, so we stayed an extra week. You know, we're all drinking, having fun, and, you know, yeah, you couldn't get butter and you couldn't get milk, but it was just kind of a surreal time. We are just hanging out as family. But then they're like, after the second week, you got to go home. I'm like, okay. So we got in a plane, and we were probably like the only five people on this plane, and then we went home. And then, you know, then it was all sudden, oh, we're not going back to work. It was a surreal time, as everyone remembers. So I'll tell you the story. Then my son, who was just supposed to graduate from college, uh, TCU near here. Oh, yeah. Got sent home. So then we started having, I remember, uh, happy hour every night. And it was a different game and happy hour. But happy hour lasted about six to eight hours. And that was super fun <laughs> until I realized, it's a good okay, hour. we got to cut down this happy hour stuff. But it was a blast at first. But then it was just weird, you know. And um, as you know, I mean, it just, everything got shut down. And it was bizarre. And eventually we went back to work. And uh, in the summer of 2020, my employer said, hey, there's a survey going on just to check out who's, who's been exposed to COVID already. And I said, I'll go get my blood tested. And I did, and I was antibody negative. So move forward a couple of months, and then it was September of 2020, and everybody in my clinic started taking time off because they had COVID. I kept working. I was like, this is weird. I mean, every person besides me was off. And, you know, we had people that would cover and all that. But after a while, I was like, I had to get exposed. I mean, because our team is like 10 people. And uh, so I went and got antibody tested. Positive. Mm. So I was really asymptomatic uh, or minimally symptomatic, but I don't really remember being sick whatsoever, and I never stopped working. Mm -hmm. So I did what, you know, uh, what I was kind of trained to do is, well, let's go see what the CDC says. So I... Uh, Went to the computer, I remember this, sitting down, going to the CDC's website, says, wait 90 days, get your shot. You know, and I maybe thought about this natural immunity thing a little bit, you know, but I, again, what I tell people is, uh, yeah, I was pretty stupid. I didn't really put too, too much thought on it. People criticize me for all the time. I criticize myself. The problem is I can't change the past. And uh, at the same point, you know, I, I did trust the system, the federal health agencies that I had really been part of my entire career. So I worked for 20 years, but remember, even before that, I trained for another 14, 15 years. Yeah. So I trusted the system. And so it said, wait 90 days. So that was the end of December. And then a good friend of mine, actually my rep that sells my joint implants. So he works for a company that um, sells the replacement parts that I used. He got COVID. And it was Wuhan, obviously, early on. He mm -hmm. got really sick, got no early treatment, was sick, and they wouldn't admit him to the hospital. Uh, got, it really, by the time he got admitted, he was almost, I mean, he was dying. And he was 40-some years old, oh. prior college football player, big, bulky, you know, yeah. or, you know, super healthy guy. And that Typical and I, orthopedic rep. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, he's a great guy. And, you know, obviously, I worked with him for years, over a decade, and, you know, I got... You know, you kind of get close to him and freak me out. And and that was kind of end of November and December. And that's when I, I would say that I kind of got freaked out and I, I reacted in a, what we'd say, a reactionary way. So when I got my 1A number in an email, you know, I, I went and got on December 30th, I got my one and only Moderna shot. 
my wife says I had some flu symptoms, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't remember anything. And, and I remember this day, you know, I, I didn't sign a consent form. No one talked to me about anything. She, the, the nurse asked me my name. She said, sit down. I sat down. 20 seconds later, I, the shot was on my arm. There was no other conversation besides what was my name. She said, go wait over there for 20, 30 minutes. I did that, waiting just to make sure I didn't have anaphylaxis. I understood what that was. And I left. I went back to work. That was my, I did it over lunch. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it was about seven days later when uh, I woke up from bed and I told my wife, I said, Megan, my feet are numb. And um, I mean, it was, you know, like numb, like certainly pins and needles. And it was like odd. And I have had prior problems with uh, pinched nerves in my neck. And I thought maybe the pinched nerve was now pinching in my spinal cord. That's what I thought. So, uh, you know, I can navigate the system like people not in healthcare can. So I can literally call my friend who is a spine surgeon and say, X, uh, I need an MRI in my neck, which I got. There's nothing new. And then a couple, I think three or four days passed. And then um, I was back in my clinic and I remember trying to stand and literally my legs wouldn't move. Oh, geez. So I pushed and I pushed off the exam. I was talking to a patient. I pushed off the examination table with my hands and my legs just completely collapsed. And I was like, okay, holy shit. Okay, I got a brain tumor. I got something wrong because I my legs wouldn't move. Yeah, that's terrifying. So I literally picked up the phone and I, I called around to MRI centers and said, I'm coming. You know, so this is where I feel bad for, you know, people can take, you know, three to six months to see a doctor. Then they got to get tests. Then they got to follow up. That's why so many of the injured people takes well over a year to get diagnosed. But literally, I called up, said, I'm coming. So uh, literally within, you know, 24 hours, and I had diagnosis of transverse myelitis. So I have a demyelinated lesion in my thoracic spinal cord. Fortunately, it's not the whole spinal cord. It's just the front where it's more of the, the motor part, you know, mm-hmm. affecting my strength and my, you know, but it. I do get some uh, sensory stuff, the numbness and tingling. And I'm sorry, just to catch everybody up, you know, the myelin and sheath, the myelin, they are, yeah, so it's the insulation. The myelin the- is the sheath or the lining around nerves, mm-hmm. okay, that help the electrical impulses work faster and correctly. Mm-hmm. And without the myelin, the nerves just can't transmit either uh, nerve signals at all or not well. Uh, so I quickly got a diagnosis of what's called transverse myelitis. You know, some people have heard about Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre is the same condition as transverse myelitis. It's just the nerves of your arms or your legs, your peripheral nerves. Transverse myelitis involves more of your central nervous system, your brain and your spinal cord. So I got that diagnosis pretty quick. So I went to see a neurologist and he said, Joel, you need to take two or three months off work. I said, Okay, I'll take two weeks off. And there's no way. I mean, I... I saw, I mean, that's a long time. Uh, okay, so I'm a, you know, double uh, type double A or triple A personality. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I don't lose. You know, I don't like to be second player. You know, I mean, that's always how I've been. So I said to him, okay, I'll take two weeks off. He goes, okay. So I mean, complete denial. Complete denial of what was going on. I mean, I did IVIG. I did steroids. I did all that. Nothing helped. Uh, and when I talk about steroids, I did like, I started at 800 milligrams of oral prednisone a day. What? Wow. 800. So I started, which oh, are, God. if anyone knows steroids or lend medicine, I mean, a standard uh, um, dose maybe for a, a allergy, maybe 24 milligrams. 
but I started at 800. First of all, I was wired. Yeah, Couldn't just sleep, for, sleep about for days and just <laughs> weeks. eating everything and, in yeah, sight. Exactly, yeah. but I started 800, but that didn't do anything except make me like go psychotic almost, but <laughs> and that didn't work. So I went on this other medicine called IVIG, which is IV immune globulin. That didn't work. But um, so I took two weeks off and then I scheduled to come back and I was getting behind in my surgical cases. So I scheduled two days of partial operative days. So partial days, I started at 6.30, I run three rooms. So partial for me is I, I did like 6.30 at two, because usually I work about 12 hour operative days. And um, I did that. And by the end of the second day, I was numb up to my belly button. I had a hard time walking. Mm. And then I remembered the day after, I couldn't get out of bed for three days. I was bedridden. And I mean, I, I, my legs wouldn't work at all. So it was an eye-opening time. I'm like, okay, uh, I guess I understand now what the neurologist was telling me, which is I got a bigger problem than what I was trying to think. So I haven't been back to work since. I mean, I, I never got better. So now, you know, I can pace myself, well, or not pace myself, but if I pace myself, I can get by day to day, day to day. Um, you know, I advocate for the injured, which I know we'll talk about more, but you know, this is an example of every day I do something like this, it'll take me two days on the couch. Really? <clears throat> yeah. And probably next week, cause I was also up at Dartmouth before this, I'll be in a walker next week, but I know that, but it's just how it goes. So if I pace myself, which is, I don't, cause I still fight for these people and I'll, I'll sacrifice myself, sacrifice myself temporarily. Um, you know, I can get by It's just, you know, I'm, I was a big water skier, a big wake surfer. You know, I saw him water seed since I was a little kid. I do tons of water sports stuff, but you know, that's all gone, which is okay. Um, and then, you know, I've also developed all this dysautonomia stuff. So your, you know, your autonomic nervous system is, is that part of your, you know, your nerve system that controls involuntary things like heart rate, blood pressure, sweating, digestion, some cognitive function. And, you know, I, I've, I've had this chronic, you know, nausea now. I've had um, chronic, I was having chronic itching. I can't sleep at night, although I'm fatigued during the day. Uh, my heart rate's been, you know, between 100 and 130 for like two years. And my blood pressure now, which was always normal, I was completely healthy before this. Like, you know, I'll, I'll say I took a testosterone injection once a week mm -hmm. okay, for low testosterone. And uh, my blood pressure has been... Uh, you know, like 150 to 170 over 100, 110 for like two years. So I've been saying this to my doctors, like, you know, my blood pressure is pretty high here. And the nurse, I remember saying, well, it might be white coat hypertension. I'm like, okay. I'm sitting there like totally yeah. like laid back like this, like you are full of shit. <laughs> so white coat hypertension is some of, you know, just means that we're nervous and our blood pressure goes up. I can handle a fair amount of stress and keep my heart rate before the injury at about 50. So, so move forward in the last six months, you know, now in the last six months, I started passing out and having all these other things going on. So it's, it's weird. So I'm one of the injured that, you know, where my symptoms, even two years out now, continue to evolve. So it's part of what I have dysautonomia. I mean, I don't technically have the diagnosis of POTS. Mm -hmm. So POTS is postural orthostasis tachycardia syndrome. But <clears throat> sometimes when I stand my my heart rate shoots way up, and then my blood pressure sometimes will plummet. And that's when I think I pass out. Wow. So um, that's the fun as it is. So I, what I say is, you know, uh, um, personally, I mean, professionally, you know, people always think I'm miserable. And a couple of things. I'm professionally devastated, no doubt about it. 
you know, I, <coughs> I lost my career that, you know, I spent, you know, 14, 15 years training for. And uh, then I practiced 20 years. But personally, I'm not devastated. You know, again, part of, part of the reason I'm very blessed is, although I love my job, I never define myself by my job. You know, and that's not my core identity. Um, <coughs> my core identity is probably, you know, my wife and my four kids. So I think, you know, that certainly saved me. Sure. Um, 2021, you know, I, I went through probably every stage of denial. I, I'm sorry, of uh, grief. Mm -hmm. And the first, obviously, is denial, which I was. And, and then I certainly went into the angry phase where I was pissed off at the world, um, bit pissed off at everybody, but you know, again, it's not productive, you know, and I, I worked through that in 2021 and, and, um, and I would say by the end of 2021, that's where I went out to DC. I got invited to talk at a press conference held by Senator Ron Johnson out in DC. There was about 10 other injured people that I had not met. One of them is my co-chair now in Rack 19, Brand Dressen. And, <coughs> excuse me, I left there, and uh, it was a very, like, moving experience. Like, first of all, I wasn't alone. I mean, if, if you want to understand um, someone that's, you know, that's been vaccine injured by the COVID shots, uh, the number one thing I'll tell you is the word that describes your experience is abandoned. Mm -hmm. um, everyone thinks you're nuts. You know, the political right says you're stupid and you should have died because uh, you should have never got the shot. Well, we just thought we were doing our part. The left calls us crazy anti-vaxxers, which is insulting considering we got the shot. I yeah. call them stupid. Right. No okay. kidding. So, it's insulting too, by the way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have pretty thick skin and I don't do social media, so people can say a lot about me and I don't really care and they can screw off. Um. Sometimes I say, uh, you know, I hate people. I don't actually hate people, but I have a tattoo now that says I hate people. <laughs> <laughs> Partly because I don't really hate people, um, but there's about 10% of the population that, that is stupid and, a, you know, takes 90% of our collective energy. And that population I do strongly dislike, and I jest that I hate people, and I really do have a tattoo that says I really? hate people. <laughs> yes. When did you get it? I got it with my older daughter about six months ago. That's we awesome. She, Love she, it. <laughs> she feels the same. But I have a dark sense of humor, too. Uh, so, but I left there from D.C., and I called my wife, and I said, Megan, I know what I'm, it was like, a, like an aha moment. I was like, I know what I have to do. I mean, it, and it wasn't to help me. And, it, and if anyone, you know, I get criticism all the time, like I'm looking for self-pity. I want nothing more than to disappear in a 500-acre farm here in Texas and get a bunch of guns and shoot things and blow things up and live by myself and my wife. And I want nothing more than to disappear into an early, retired, happy life. But I'm, I'm super passionate to serve these people that got injured because they really have been truly abandoned and... Um, Hopefully I can swear a little bit. Yeah. So swear um, I call it the trifecta. <laughs> so the injured have, have won the negative lottery of the trifecta, like in gambling. So they are financially, physically, and emotionally fucked. They have nothing. You know, financially, they can't work. You know, uh, 
uh, financially, they have a compensation program uh, called the CICP, yeah. which to date has paid out three claims for a total of $4,500. What? Yeah. So there's three claims that have been paid to people injured by the COVID shots for a total of $4,500. <laughs> Our care fund through React 19, and that's one of the ways we help them is financially, has paid out 81 claims for a total of 562000 over 562000 for an average grant of $6,800. How have we raised that money? Grassroots, man. How many wow. corporate sponsors do you think we have? Zero. Zero, yeah. Okay. And raising money is hard because, you know, we're a, certainly a non-political organization, but we're in a very highly politicized environment. So, but anyway, so I left there and I realized we had to take this and make this a real organization. I always say Brianne Dressen is actually, you know, the originator of the, this was her idea even before, you know, I got involved, but, you know, we kind of made it a real organization. I kind of say I'm her assistant or her secretary, but that's fine. We work well together. You know, again, I'm, I'm a lifelong, well, not lifelong, but pretty much lifelong post-college Republican, mm -hmm. okay? And Brianne Dressen is a registered Democrat, but it doesn't matter. You know, our, our, our passion, our calling to help these people is, is a humanitarian one. You know, um, I don't give a shit what political, you know, aisle they're from. And, and frankly, when we go to D.C. and we do, and I'll get a little bit into that, I'll work both sides, just like the politicians work us. So we tend to talk to the Republicans and the House and, and the Senate for, regarding the need for, you know, investigations and oversight. Uh, but we also uh, talk to both parties and probably more Democrats and independents when we talk about the need for compensation reform. Right. But, you know, they use us, I'll use them. Who administers the CICP? Who even sees it's the that? Health and Human Services Division okay. you know, of, of you know, Health and Human Services, say HHS. Does it have a face or is there a team of people? Even? Yeah, sure. They don't do anything. I got you. Historically, the CIC program, his, their historical budget is 94% of their budget goes to overhead, 6% goes to injured people. That's pre-COVID. Imagine having a business that you had 94% overhead. How long would you be in business for? Well, if you're government, you yeah, government as long as you want. But again, that's the CIC pro program historically is 94% overhead of their budget. Annual budget is 94% to overhead, 6% to injured. That's pre-COVID. <laughs> but that's the system we're put into. So let me get back to a little bit to, um, to react. So we left DC totally molded as a core group. Uh, we formed a Wisconsin based corporation applied for a 501 C three status, which we're now a 501 C three, you know, uh, a nonprofit organization. We did everything a startup does, uh, made bylaws, all that, you know, painful stuff for three to six months, but we had to do it. And, you know, now we're a very, what we say is a grassroots, very science-based, uh, non-political organization. Although, obviously, as I've said, we're, we understand we're in a highly politicized environment. Uh, with regards to being science-based, we've chosen to be that. You know, we're not, uh, we're not crazy anti-vaxxers. We're not people running up and down the streets, you know, blowing horns, using megaphones. We try to be very cool, calm, and collected and science-based to try to reach out to what we call as a moldable middle. You know, there's, there's what I say is on our side is, is what I say is that the people that know science that are woke, I use their term, but we're woke. We know the science. We know the truth. We're trying to help these people that just tried to do the right thing, get injured. 
There's the people on the opposite side that I could show them something that's black and they'd say it's white. They're stupid. Right. So I don't deal with them. So that's my strategy. So I don't mind speaking to believers like, you know, I know the truth. I know science. I can, I know, you know, the vaccines aren't safe. They're not effective. Um, but at the same point, I'm not going to waste my time. There's not enough time in the day to deal with the people that are just completely ignoring reality. But there's a big, huge, moldable middle out there of people that I think are ready to open their eyes and uncover their ears. They just don't know the truth, okay? And that's what I call, again, since we have a little time to explain it, the difference between stupidity and ignorance. Okay, the people that, you know, you show them something that's black, they say white, they're stupid, okay? So they, they're, they're stupid because they do know or they should know, okay? Like Peter Marx was the head of biologics, uh, you know, when he says all oh, the vaccines totally safe, he's stupid because he should know that's his job. But regardless, um, that's the he, quote he's, you had in your talk about oh, yeah. there. He's a prick. He's head of biologics. Where exactly? At the FDA. FDA. Okay. So the multiple middle, and I don't mean this in a pejorative or a derogatory term, the multiple middle are just ignorant of the facts and I don't blame them. Right. Right. Because the facts have been held from them. The pharma money is every, everywhere. Okay. In our society. And people don't really know. The pharma monies in government are politicians, Republican and Democrats. Yep. Both are, uh, are tainted by pharma money, but the pharma money goes to the media and goes to Fox Media too. So, I mean, you, you can't, you got to be careful everywhere, but it goes to our uh, institutions of higher learning, our medical schools. It goes to the journals. It, it It's all over. It's so pervasive that, it, they control the narrative such that um, there's a big part of the population that just are completely oblivious to what's going on right now. So that's what in React we try to be very cool, calm, and collected and science-based. So as trying to decrease censorship, but despite us trying to avoid censorship, we're censored all the time. I got to tell you a couple stories. <laughs> okay. Go for it. Well. First of all, I use CDC and FDA data all the time, and I'll get censored or pulled off for Facebook. You know, and it's using so their own data, using their data, which is which is one of those things where it's just like, okay. Then I, in my mind, I say two things: stupid, and then I hate people. <laughs> okay. So, is that the sign when you're with your wife and somebody's annoying you? You just point actually, to the tattoo. You know, like in the summer, I was actually down in Punta Cana. I was talking to people for spring break, and they're annoying me. So I was just kind of sitting there like this with my arms over, so it was sticking out. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing I got to tell you is a little bit of story. Um, we spoke on the steps of Lincoln Memorial in January 2022. It was quite moving. It's kind of where Martin Luther King Jr. spoke, and uh, it was a big rally. Raised a bunch of money. Uh, it was fantastic. And for that event, we introduced a brand new music video called Silenced. It was all about censorship. It was written by a person that was injured by one of the COVID shots. It was sang by a professional singer who was also injured by one of the COVID shots. Super emotional and just stories of injured people, all verifiable. It was taken down within eight hours off Vimeo. On Vimeo. And Vimeo and pulled off YouTube and everywhere else as misinformation. So it's actually a video of every person who were verifiable vaccine injured, written by a vaccine, sung by a vaccine injured, pulled off, called silenced about censorship and pulled off the internet. All sites. 
Whoa. I think except Rumble. So that's the kind of stuff that we're up against. Like that's evil. And I can talk to you a lot about evil. My impression that so, um, so we form React. So we we have the grants. That's part of the the financial support. Physically, we've developed care networks. So we have a mental health network. We have a provider network. Uh, people that we vetted because we don't want to be gaslit. So 90 plus percent of us are gaslit. So we go see a provider. They don't believe us. Right. Yeah. They think we're nuts. And, and, or frankly, they don't know what to do. Okay. They're completely uneducated, partly because the federal agencies haven't communicated with the health organizations about what we, they might see. And the health organizations don't communicate with their doctors. So we've created these networks. I'm about ready to launch a spiritual network. If you saw my study today, uh, some of the literature we, yes. you know, so um, prayer and meditation and have, have been some of the, in our surveys, some of the most helpful things to people uh, in our organization. And uh, that survey really woke, that woke me up. I mean, so the top six things were either related to meditation, prayer, or dietary changes, you know, uh, like the top hundred things that people were reporting helping. So that changed my mind. So we definitely have to start a spiritual network. You know what that that exact graph that you put up and you pointed it out was the fact that exercise made people worse. So this outlet that you you know just you need to eat better and go exercise. Yeah. Exercise is making these people worse. They couldn't. yeah. So uh, aggressive exercise, aggressive physical therapy was the number one thing that you could do that would make injured people worse. Wow. And I learned that too, because there was a point where I really said to myself in 2022, I'm gonna try to go back to work. And I said, I'm gonna work out every other day. And I was pretty committed to it. And I would do it for a week. And then I couldn't walk for a week. And I was like, this is bullshit. Cause you know, you kind of think, okay, I'm gonna condition myself out of it. You thinking my old mentality. Cause you know, I, if I would get out of condition, I'd be tired and kind of feel like a slug and, but I couldn't work myself out of it. And, and frankly, it just got me in the same cycle where I work out for a week, I'd be on the couch for a week. And I'm talking about like, I, sometimes I, I couldn't walk or I'd be in a walker. I mean, there's days where I couldn't walk or I just rolled to the bathroom. Do you, did you ever just to get sciencey for a moment, do you know the mechanism of action of how it does that? Uh, with a transverse myelitis? With the transverse myelitis, when you exert yourself and then you have this prolonged period of inability. Don't to really do. know, honestly. I mean, transverse myelitis, I really think, well, it gets a little more complicated. So it may be autoimmune attack originally, right? So the spike protein resembles some neural tissue. So, you know, the, the, the mRNA spike protein vaccine you know, uh, you know, you, you get the vaccine, your immune system attacks the spike protein, but the spike protein to some degree through molecular mimicry looks a little bit like neural tissue. And then you get an attack on your neural tissue. But why I was getting, you know, those flares where I'd exercise, I don't know if I just was causing a lot of acute inflammation that added on to it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but good question. But one thing that is interesting is when I go into those flares, they are responsive to steroids. Mm -hmm. So I think... The flares are probably inflammatory. Now, to make things more complicated, I have a diagnosis of transverse myelitis, but if you ask my opinion, I'm not sure if I just didn't have a spinal cord infarct. Oh. oh. Remember, so if you look at transverse myelitis people, third of them get better, third of them will just be chronic, third of them get worse over time. 
I just never got better from the, the deficits from my transverse myelitis. But a lot of the people that I've met that had really had transverse myelitis, even temporarily, they got better with steroids and IVIG. And I got nothing. And when this hit me, it hit me like a, it was, it was very acute. And now as we learn more about the vaccines causing a lot of microclotting, mm -hmm. I'm really suspicious that I had a microclot related spinal cord infarct. That would explain more being laid up afterwards after creating more demand on your body yeah. and needing more blood flow and more response. If there is an infarct, that will exacerbate that. So the truth is there's probably no way to know because an MRI, there's really not going to be a way to tell the difference. But, and I've talked to Pierre Corey about this and I've talked to some other people who think, you know, and we've all kind of agreed that it's one or the other. And I think most people would lean today towards a spinal cord infarct. Now, does it change anything? No. But it kind of makes more sense when you look back, never got better with IVIG, which would have got better at least temporarily with the, uh, if it was <clears throat> transverse myelitis, it would temporarily got better with the steroids and the IVIG, it never did. The only thing that, it, you know, steroids help now is with the acute flares, which I think are then probably more inflammatory mm -hmm. because the steroids are really more of a potent anti-inflammatory. Um, how did I digress? But anyway... <laughs> so I think I just got curious yeah. about if, what your thoughts were on the mechanism of that yeah. because I, I'm very, very impressed with how you know this is going to happen and you still just continue to push forward. Well, um, I know, yeah, it makes me feel suck. But... I have to fight for these people. I mean, they're fucked. The data that you presented today is astounding. The data that you have acquired, and you could see everybody in the audience when you were doing this. Clearly, a lot of people in the audience are suffering. They came to this conference. A lot of them are doctors that treat people. But when you were circling things, people were just nodding. And it's this, yes, yeah. this, yes, I'm not alone. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And we're not nuts. I mean, um, that's why, I mean, again, part of the other, the way we've tried to help people physically is not only the care networks, you know, mental health, um, uh, you know, uh, medical provider. Um, and, and now I hope to develop a spiritual network, but we're very much involved in education. You know, I'm very proud of, you know, FLCCC has an awesome educational platform, but we do a little bit of our own from our perspective. So we have webinars for patients that are injured. We also have webinars for, for providers, okay? Um, we're very much trying to be involved in research. Obviously, you know, we don't have the money, we don't have the research infrastructure to do big double-blind placebo-controlled studies, but as both of you saw today, you know, we have the injured. You know, we now represent... We went from 10 to over 30,000. Uh, we just checked. I mean, we're, I, I was quoting 21,000 a week ago, but Brian and I went over all of our social media numbers and all of our databases this week. It's over 30. 30 over 30,000 30, Americans injured by the COVID shots. No one knows. I mean, again, we're just, I mean, we're all, do you think that, I mean, and again, I don't believe, we don't represent every American, but, you know, I laugh when some people say, oh, COVID injuries are one in a million or they're rare. Okay, well, if COVID injuries occur at the instance of one in a million, 
say there's like 350 million Americans in the, in, you know, the United States, that means there'd be 350 injuries. Okay, we represent 30,000, and I'm sure, promise you, that we're a fraction of the Yeah, yeah that's just the say, ones that I found just, you. Yeah, just learning about React 19. Right. So, yeah, so those people are stupid. Um, and then our last thing that we do is our emotional realm. And in the emotional realm, we have uh, well over you know, 30,000 people housed in primarily social media-based support groups. Uh, it was very heartbreaking. In December, we had to start a bereavement group for parents of dead kids. And I thought last year that the kids' stories would get the media to cover them. They don't, you know. And, and I, I've talked to countless parents of dead children. Um, it's heartbreaking. It's crazy. It's, it's, it's just nuts. It's evil. It's evil. And I'll, I'll certainly get to that, too. So, uh, you know, so we have all these social media-based support groups. We also have an advocacy network. The Advocacy Network is a group of nurses and social workers we have across the country that can be assigned to a newly diagnosed injured person that really needs a lot of one-on-one -on -one support. So what I realized is, is, you know, if you're marginalized in this country, and when I say marginalized, for any reason, you have underlying mental health problems, you don't have a lot of money, you know, and, uh, I'm sorry, or you don't have family support, you, have a, you don't have a job, you have a job you hate, those people... Uh, are exponentially more disabled by a vaccine injury, for a COVID shot injury. Uh, they are just totally lost. And we assign them a one-on-one -on -one kind of advocate that helps them through everything. It's mm -hmm. amazing. So it can be from anything from finding a doctor to find me a pharmacy to fill an ivermectin script or, you know, geez, my son, you know, who used to live here but now moved to Washington. I mean, I had him go get groceries for a guy that lives in Fort Worth area and, get them $400 of groceries because they couldn't get out of the house. I mean, we'll do anything. Wow. So we always say we're an extremely proactive advocacy organization, but sometimes you need help with housing issues, transportation, financial resources, et cetera. So that's kind of what we say is our overt mission. So I always say we have a covert mission. So, um, you know, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, and as such, we don't support any given political party or political candidate, but we, we do make our needs known at the federal level particularly around two issues. One is the need for compensation reform. As I stated, the CICP, which, or CIC program, which is the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, is absolutely horrible. It's only paid out three claims despite having well over 10 or 20 or 15,000 claims. And the three claims that they paid out are for a total of $4,500. So we've been working very hard with regards to making our needs known for a need for compensation reform at the federal level. I mean, I go out there, we have a lot of meetings with politicians. I've got to know a lot of people, and a lot of good people that are, I think, trying to help. And I, and I mean this, Democrats in this realm, almost more than Republicans. And our call is, is a humanitarian call. It's not a political call. It's, mm -hmm. you know, these are people, Democrat, Republican, I don't care. Right. That we're just trying to help. And, um, and the second issue is the need for oversight and investigation. Now that's been more of the Republican party. Sure. Particularly in the House. So uh, we've been on, you know, geez, Brian's met with, Brian Dressen, who's my co-chair, has met with Janet Woodcock, Walensky, not, not Fauci, but all uh, Francis Collins, a lot of the big heavy hitters, and we both met with Peter Marks several times on Zoom. So he knows we've taped everything. <laughs> <laughs> it was legal because it was coming from the state of Utah. Yeah. Uh, we've turned all that over, and we have 700-some documents. We have hours of uh, 
video calls that uh, I, I, I can't even believe what I've heard and what I've seen. Who, you say turn it over. What do you mean by turn to it over? To the House Investigations teams. Oh, okay. Wow. So I, I, I can't believe I live in this country. So the lying. When you, when yeah, you, so I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, I, I I only hope, you know, I don't believe anyone's going to go to prison per se, but I hope that through these investigations, the public is educated about what's happened and you know just how much lying and deceit's gone on, and and I hope that that'll create so much political pressure on the politicians. That's my hope. I don't think anyone's going to go to prison. They're all going to get out. Fauci's a criminal, but I think he'll. Know, right off of the sunset with its golden parachute. But my hope is, is the investigations wake the public up, that moldable middle, and make demands on both uh, the Republicans and the Democratic politicians mm -hmm. to act and to, to help the injured people. <clears throat> and frankly, I also want to see all, you know, all injuries stop. I mean, absolutely, I will tell you without hesitation, these, all these COVID shots should be stopped immediately across the board in every age group and studied, okay, thoroughly before any further uh, re-implementation of any uh, COVID-19 vaccine strategies re-implemented. So just two days ago, I think that you were at Dartmouth in uh, uh, New Hampshire, and if I read correctly, that was in part to educate universities to stop their mandates upon Oh, that they have a, a for students. Is that correct? Yeah. So the vast majority of colleges across the country still have mandates. For, it's the vast majority. Vast majority. I, didn't, majority I did not know that. Are still mandating their kids. Wow. That is societal child abuse. Let me be very clear. That is societal child abuse. Young people, the statistical risk of them dying from COVID is zero. Okay. If you look it up maybe in the area of three per million. And I always tell people, put that in your calculator. Calculator says zero. The risks to young people of the COVID shots is real. And there's a study in Thailand that shows that both symptomatic and asymptomatic myocarditis occurs at risk of 2%. You know, that's one in 50. There's zero reason, in my opinion, anybody, any young person should be getting COVID shots. Again, I want to be... I, I call it like this, and if my medical board wants to call me, please do. It's societal child abuse. It needs to be stopped immediately. And, and I don't blame parents, okay? And I, I don't mean, I'm not trying to say the parent. It's, it's our society. It's our federal agencies. It's you know, our healthcare organizations. It's our doctors. And, and again, don't let doctors, I mean, I'm so sick of doctors getting a pass. So I hear this all the time in meetings. The doctors, their hands are tied. Uh, you know, they're just worried about their losing their license. Grow a set of fucking gonads, okay? Jesus, speak up for the patient once and for all. You know, our job, you know, and, and the reason, you know, physicians historically, you know, were kind of a higher calling profession is because, you know, above all else, we did the right thing for student harm. You know, now all these employed providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistant, just do what they're told. They're not scientists. They don't look at the data. How many providers do you think are actually going to the CDC website like I do and look at what's the coverage of the vaccine for this week, the surrounding variants? None. They just, well, safe and effective. Okay? Stupid. Okay? And that's why they fall into the stupid category because they should know.
But again, the employed physician of today, which is the vast majority of providers here in the United States, are employed. And, and, and in my opinion, as the, these generations have passed, especially these younger generations of physicians and other healthcare providers, want to know how much can I get paid, a little cold do I have to take, um, how much vacation can I have, and please tell me what to do, because that's easier. That's, Eric has brought this up several times on the podcast, that the generational differences that people coming out now are being handed, this is how you're going to treat this, this is how you're going to treat this, it's protocol driven. They love and, it. And you no, work the at thing. the hospital. Yeah, so I wrote an article, I could show you one time, it's called The Employed Physician, The End of Healthcare. I mean, you know, it's, it's driven down the quality of healthcare. You know, if it's five o'clock and, you know, you, you come in there with a heart attack and, oh, they're not on call, they're out the door. I mean, again, versus, you know, my generation, you're, you know, it's the same as yours. I mean, um, you're going to do the right thing. I'm going to call my wife and say, you know, I got a problem here. I'm going to be here until I'm done because I got a patient I got to take care of. It's different today. Health organizations have gotten bigger and bigger. Let me use an example, okay? Advocate Aurora Healthcare. Oh, wait, that was my employer. So, um, Aurora Healthcare, who I worked for, joined with Advocate uh, in Chicago. Came bigger, right? Now they just joined with Atrium in North Carolina. Now they're the fifth largest uh, healthcare organization in the country. So you think, oh, they must know how to do things. They're going to run things really well and, you know, run things so efficiently they can decrease costs and all that stuff. Well, let's talk about the average cost of a deer replacement in Wisconsin. Their average cost is $20,000 more than the average in surrounding hospitals. How can they do that? They monopolized it, right? Big employers have to include every major carrier and every major provider, right? So, you know, if Advocate Aurora, now Atrium Healthcare, owns, you know, all of this territory, all these big employers have to cover them and they get away with charging $20,000 more for an average, you know, knee replacement. So, you know, you get the employed providers that provide I would say is not as good care, not personalized care, not value-based care. And then you see costs going up as, as these big, huge healthcare conglomerates form. Let me tell you a little bit other story about them. And this goes back to a little bit of censorship. So I was on extended medical leave. And, you know, every month or two, they'd call me and they'd say, can we do a video call or a Zoom? Say, can I check on you? Or it was catch up. And I was like, yeah. And I always tell them. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm trying this or I'm trying that and no, I can't go back to work and I'm seeing my neurologist back in two months. Well, let's follow up then. So through this whole thing, you know, I've been pretty vocal at the national level and certainly not making them too proud. Um, <laughs> and I know they'd love me to shut up, but I won't. So um, I've now been on medical leave. No, I'm, still, I'm still employed, okay? Still after 18 months. I'm not anymore, but... But after 18 months, still employed, mm -hmm. but I'm on medical leave because my neurologist won't declare me at the end of healing because he still said spinal cord injury could get better for 18 to 24 months. So I get another catch-up, you know, subject line catch-up. Okay. You know, the people I know I like. Turn the video on. Oh, people on HR are on there too. So they notify me that they're investigating me for prescribing irregularities. Okay. Friends and family prescribing. So if, like, let's say as a physician, have you ever got a call of a friend or a family or a neighbor that had a little skin infection, you prescribe them for five days of Keflex or something else? Yeah. I wasn't running a, you know, a regular narcotic clinic or anything like yeah. that. <laughs> and remember, I was gone for 18 months. So they investigated me while I was working back like a couple of years. Oh, wow. They were just, somebody was told we have to find a reason. 
find something. Plus, okay. And then they suggested, and I'm being careful how I say this, all the possibilities about what would result if they reported me to the medical board. They threatened you. Oh, well, you could interpret it as a threat. I've re- I interpret it as telling them to fuck off. Okay, so at this point, I was pretty clear that I wasn't going back to work and I will not be threatened. And I ended the call and told them to fuck themselves and to talk to my attorney, and it, that's where we're at now. But, again, that's the kind of censorship and threats that a lot of us get in this uh, space. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not done with me, or I'm definitely not done with them. But, um, but that's the kind of stuff that a lot of us have gone through, and I'm not the only one. I didn't lose my license, but at this point I'm not working. I challenge the medical board. Everything I'm saying is factual, so bring it on. So um, that's kind of what we're up against. Would you say that uh, the battle against mandates is becoming a little bit more successful as the time goes forward? Yeah, it is, because I think it's harder and harder for people to deny the science. You know, mm-hmm. Ryan Cole says the cells don't lie. I actually say the data doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. But the challenge with the data is you got to get the data. What people don't understand is when you talk about the safety and efficacy data of the vaccines, mm-hmm. who owns the data? People just don't understand this. They think it's the FDA and CDC. It's not. Pharma owns the data. It's their data. It's not our data. Now, we paid for all this, a lot of this stuff, and, uh, but, you know, it's their data. So if we don't have the data, you know, it's hard to make good decisions. But I think even as more and more lawsuits occur, and I do think the lawsuits, and I think there's thousands coming all across this country. And I think, you know, through the lawsuits and the FOIA, you know, which is Freedom of Information Act uh, releases that come out of, the, of these lawsuits, as you know, Aaron Siri, who was just up with us in, in Dartmouth, uh, you know, is uh, the lead attorney from ICANN who, you know, fought to the Supreme Court about getting rid of the federal mandate for the shots. But I think as more and more data is coming out because we forced it out, Mm -hmm. usually through lawsuits, I think people are realizing, okay, hold on. I was told these shots were safe and effective. Well, that to me doesn't really mean anything. So let's go in more detail. I was told the shots would prevent infection and and, and prevent transmission. Well, that's not true. Well, I was then told, well, it, you know, it, the shots prevent, you know, hospitalization and death. Well, as more and more studies come out, eh, that may not necessarily all be true. And now we're at a point where we have this bivalent shot, which is a combination of Wuhan strain and BA4 and BA5. Both are completely extinct. So we're literally giving people a bivalent booster. Bivalent means two, as you guys know. BA4, BA5, and Wuhan, and the current, by, they're, they're extinct. Well, we actually had Robert Malone, and he went into great detail about the ability of this bivalent to create just even more havoc in so many different ways. Okay. So, yeah, so I, I'd like to expand on that a little bit. So, because there's a guy named Dr. David Wiseman, who I'm also part of, I'm in Global COVID Summit, actually that group with Ryan Cole and those Mm -hmm. guys. And Dr. David Wiseman, who's a brilliant scientist. Uh, I had an upcoming meeting with Peter Marks, with Brianne Dressen on a Zoom. And um, before the call, Dr. David Wiseman totally educated me about the new bivalent booster. Remember, EUA approved with no studies. Okay. So bivalent vaccine, meaning there's, there's kind of two prongs of it. 
You know, one is the Wuhan kind of spike and the other one's BA4, BA5 subvariant. But there's something through, and again, I'm, I'm not a pharmacologist, but uh, through heterotrimer formation, you can actually form four different spike proteins, four unique spike proteins in a bivalent booster. So I, I got on the call and Dr. Wiseman told me exactly what to say. So I said, Dr. Marks, would you agree that the spike protein is immunogenic or pro-inflammatory, creates inflammation. He goes, yep. And I was like, okay, I got him on that one. So then I said, would you agree that a bivalent booster can actually, through heterotrimer formation, create four different spike proteins? He said, yep. I was like, dude, I got you. So I said, well, wouldn't it be logical, therefore, that the bivalent booster may be more immunogenic than the monovalent booster? And he goes, oh, and this is on tape. I rescind what I said. I'll have to, I'll have to talk to my experts and I'll get back to you. He rescinded what, what he said. It's on tape. Oh, it, it, I mean, I was like, this is the head of biologics who just rescinded what he said because he knew he fell into a little bit of a trap. But I mean, I would, those are honest questions. And he literally said, I'll have to talk to my experts and get back. What, it, what is his title again? I'm sorry. He's a head. He's the the boss at the FDA of the vaccine. He's the head what? of biologics. And he can just rescind? He said, I rescind what I answered, and I'll uh, have to talk to my experts and get back to you. I'm going to try that on my wife. Yeah. When we argue. <laughs> I'm not trying that. Don't kick me in the balls. Honey, I rescind what I said. I'm going to go talk yeah. to my expert. Yeah. <laughs> so that's true. And I, I'm going to call I, you, by the way. You're going to be my expert in this. Uh, but um, you can't make some of this stuff up. I mean, this is wow. some of the stuff we handed over you know, to the house investigation team. You can't make this stuff up. You know, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not proud to be a doctor. I'm not proud of our healthcare profession anymore. I frankly can't believe in a live in, in this country and what's happened. I mean, I, I love to be an American. I believe in liberty. Many of it's are wrong because they're wrong. They're infringed by individual, individual liberty. I'm not going to live in tyranny. and I'm not going to live in fear. You know, and that's what, how, we, how have we controlled all these people? Because they all thought they're going to die. Yeah. Remember that, you know, in the early and after the, uh, you know, the Cuomo uh, ticker tape, you know, you'd have cases and deaths around yeah. on the bottom and everyone's freaked out. I fell into that. We, we all are willing to live in tyranny and give up control in fear. And I'm not fearful. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I refuse to live in fear. I live in this country. I live in a place of liberty. If someone wants to try to take me down, good luck. I don't care if I die. That's why I think, you know, a lot of us in this cause, I mean, I, I you know, I become much more spiritual and um, I don't have fear. Hmm. Would you mind sharing a story that I've heard you reference uh, a good while back, but it's about a, a young woman and her name was Juliana? Yeah, so Juliana is, uh, she lives in New York. She was a high school senior and uh, she had a history of autoimmune disease. Uh, without going into a ton of details or past medical history, she did a bunch of research, found out that she's right. Auto, people with autoimmune disease have a high risk of adverse events. And how this 17-year-old figured out, and most of us injured people don't even know this, but she figured it out. She went to her doctor and said, showed her some information, said, I want a medical exemption. I don't want to get this shot. Uh, so she did. She got a medical exemption. So then she got into college. So she got into a fairly prestigious New York university. And then they uh, gave her like a half, it was some significant scholarship, several hundred thousand dollars, like a half scholarship. 
uh, they say, here's your scholarship, but if you want it, you got to take a shot. So she did. Mm. Coercion. Uh, got transverse myelitis. Is in a wheelchair. So I think a wheelchair for a year, year or two years. Now, I, th- I heard of late she's getting better. I just texted her mom the other day. Um, I heard she's getting better. But again, there's a, can you believe it? I mean, again, valid medical exemption. Young kid with no risk. Actually, much higher risk now. We know autoimmune, underlying autoimmune disease damage adverse event. But truly gets coerced. I mean, coerced because of offering the money. But, oh, no, I'm not going to give it to you. And then um, ended up having transverse myelitis. It's horrible. I mean, again, I, I you know, I can sit here and tell you stories that'll break your heart. A lot sure. of people are dead. Um, and even people that, you know, had an adverse event from the first shot went back and, you know, told their provider, hey, you know, should I really get this shot? And then got it and died. You know, and providers always, oh, yeah, don't worry, you take the second one or take some Tylenol or Benadryl. Okay, if you have an adverse event, you're much more likely to have another adverse event, and it's much more likely to be much worse. Mm-hmm. So as I showed today in my presentation, you know, of the adverse events we looked into, 12% of the people at adverse events had an adverse event after the first shot and got convinced to do it again. How evil is that? It's just wild. It's evil. It really is. And then somebody asked that question. These adverse events, you didn't even include all the issues with pregnancy and potentially what's going to happen in the future. And yeah. <clears throat> Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about regulatory norms of the FDA. <laughs> okay. Regulatory norms of the FDA means <clears throat> when you try to get something approved, you know, but I'm just saying for everybody in your audience, um, when you try to get something approved, what's the normal process? The normal time to get a vaccine approved is somewhere between five and 10 years. Mm-hmm. The Pfizer shot was approved under emergency youth authorization in 108 days. So everybody needs to keep that in perspective. Okay. It's still not fully FDA approved. What we're going through right now is the world's largest clinical trial. We're all guinea pigs. I mean, it's just true. Now, what's some other regulatory norms? You never, ever, ever experiment on children and pregnant women. Oops. Guess what we just did? We just started using it in pregnant women and children with zero human trials in those populations. And it's still not FDA approved. It's approved under emergency use authorization. Um, now, what was the other thing I was going to say? I, well, that's a regulatory norm, but I can't remember. I'll remember. I'm sorry, I forgot. That's I blanked out. That's a, okay. Well, we've talked a lot about the hard edge, and we've we've uh, mentioned React 19. What do you think, other than people going to react19.org and catching up with your organization, your mission, what else should people take away to look towards hope, and how can they take action today? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, anybody that's thinking about getting a shot, if you go see your provider and they say the word safe and effective, run, okay, run. Because if they use that term, they don't know. They don't know the science themselves, okay. Um, Teach yourself. Go to CDC's website. Look at their numbers, 
Okay, look at the coverage of the current uh, COVID bivalent boosters in relation to the circulating. It's all there. Okay, the media is not going to show it to you, or they're not going to put it in a report because they're part of the complicit in the lie or the collusion. But so educate yourself. Um, engage in a dialogue. You know, again, part of science is a dialogue, and this world is so polarized. I can't even have a conversation with someone that wants to scream at me because I'm an anti-vaxxer rather than me just talking about science and, and really the numbers of the shot, you know, the, the truth about, you know, the safety and efficacy of the shot. Uh, I can have a dialogue with somebody and they can disagree with me, but um, I encourage people to try to start dialogues. We have to get back to being, you know, <clears throat> being able to be having dialogue with our neighbors and friends and maybe disagreeing, but working through it, have empathy for the people that are injured. Um, these people just, they're not nuts. Okay. Okay. If they're nuts, I'm nuts, but maybe I am nuts. But, um, but again, <laughs> these people, uh, we've lost human empathy, you know, and a concern about just humanitarian concern, you know, and, uh, people have become so polarized and, and it, it really, this again is not a political issue. Okay. Um, we just have kind of, Stop being good human beings. Like, just basic human empathy. And then I think it's really get out there. Um, get out there. Um, uh, support, uh, you know, support others who will speak up or speak up yourselves. How can they support? Well, they can uh, donate, you know, again, uh, they can donate to React 19. So it's www.react19.org. We also have a text-to-give number. They can text the word REACT, R-E-A-C-T, to the number 50155. We'll put everything in that. We'll yeah, put all that in the show notes. Yeah, they'll get sure. a response, you know, a reply text and right there. So um, we are 100% volunteer. I mean, I'm not doing this for myself, it's, uh, you know, as I've said, and there's no one on our board that's doing it for themselves. I'm doing it to, you know, for, for two reasons. Number one, um, I don't want to see, you know, more people injured, but I want to see these people that are injured get help. Right. So, um, you know, I can talk about my strategic plan. I don't know if I told, talked to you guys about this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our strategic plan for this year was to kind of reach out to the moldable middle. We want to start our own clinic, you know, that's solely uh, focused on treating the COVID shot injured mm. here in the United States, be the first ever clinic as such. But what's my five-year plan? Not to be doing this. I, that's the truth. I mean, again, what we're doing in React is exactly what our providers, our health organizations, and our federal agencies should be doing. We are doing exactly what they, there's nothing, should, we shouldn't exist. So truly, that is my strategic five-year plan, is not to be doing this. And, and again, I, because if they do their jobs, React 19 would not exist. That's right. Period. Well, Dr. Walskog, I can't thank you enough for coming and sharing your story and the mission that you're doing for people who've been injured. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, I think there's something super powerful and really inspiring the way that this took you down and you continue to push forward and you are just leading by example. Thanks. Very inspired. I, again, thank you very much. Everyone, uh, thank you all for tuning in. And of course, if you're watching on Rumble or on YouTube... This is going to be the end of the free portion of Gut Check Project. We're going to move over now to Gut Check Project Raw. If you're on Rumble, just hit the join button, and it'll take you straight over to 
Go check Project Raw where you can see a little bit more of our in-depth conversation here. So if they here. pay, then they can see the tattoo? Yes, they pay. <laughs> you're going to see the tattoo. Uh, <laughs> I hate people. Here with uh, courtesy of Dr. Walscog. Uh, please like and share. And thank you all so much for, shorten it, uh, for uh, supporting the Gut Check Project. This concludes the free portion of the Gut Check Project. For full access to the raw interviews, just visit gutcheckproject.com. Click the GCP Raw Circle and use code HERO for a free month, plus all of the access with being a supporter of the Gut Check Project. Please share this episode with your friends and thank you for being a part of the Gut Check Project.